Uh, I know I got to welcome you this morning um, as we began our time of worship, and now I get the honor and the joy and the privilege to be up here with you opening God's Word and uh, pointing us to, uh, to it and hopefully pulling out some good things for us in it today too. Um, thank you to Eric and Kaiki, to Pastor Eric and Kaiki for the last couple weeks, uh, walking us through Nehemiah chapter 6 and continuing that story as we saw the wall around Jerusalem come to its completion. And today I get to take us through the final 68 verses of chapter 7. So if you would open up your Bibles to chapter 7 with me, I'm going to warn you, I waffled back and forth for a while on whether or not we read the entirety of the text, right? It's a big, long list of... Uh, of names that's in there, names that are going to be hard for me to pronounce, but uh, I think we're going to go for it, church, because it's good to hear God's Word read out loud, even when it's a big, long genealogy like that, too. Amen? Amen. Amen. So go ahead and get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 with me, and I'm going to try and get through that quick, because otherwise we're going to be here till 1 o'clock today, so, or not, not 1 o'clock, not 1 o'clock. We stop at 11.30, right? So that'd be a whole extra hour and a half, so. Some people about to pick up their stuff and walk out the door right now, isn't there? So, All right. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 7. <clears throat> we're going to start at verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, uh, <clears throat> Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Bana. The number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shepatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zechai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikem, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ader, namely Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Hareth, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anatoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath Jerim, Shepherah, Beeroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sina, Sina, three, or 3,930. The priests, the son of Jediah, namely, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, 
the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodeva, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobabai, 138, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboath, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, and the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefushim, Nefushesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaal, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, sons of Shephatiah, sons of Hatil, sons of, here's a good one, Pokahereth Hazabim, the sons of Ammon, the, son, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Malal, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's house nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with the Urim and the Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priestly garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest's garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. One of those lists in there, it took a long time to get all the sons' names. I was like, that other guy had 2,000, and it was one name. Come on. This is the beauty of God's Word, though, right? We get to look at things like genealogies and still be encouraged by it today, church. Today we're looking at our sermon, and uh, this is Nehemiah chapter 7. I've called it The People of the Kingdom. And as we get started, I just want to share a funny story with you, too, to help illustrate the point. But when we were back in Georgia, I joked with my in-laws that every time I come back to visit, there's always a box sitting there waiting for me to put something together or, or to build something or, 
or to do something at their house, right? Now, this past time, I didn't actually have one waiting for me. It's not actually, it's, it's a, kind of a running joke. But, uh, of course, I went looking for something, right? I can't, can't help myself. And what did I find? I found a box with an oven rain, an oven hood, a new oven hood sitting in a, in a closet somewhere that had been waiting to be put up for some time. And so, of course, out of my curiosity, I said, let's open that thing up and see how hard that would actually be to install it. And directions looked pretty simple. And so I said, you know what? Yeah, sure, I know it's the last night here. I know it's already dark and I've got to cut the electricity off, but let's go ahead and install this thing anyway, right? So uh, even though there were a couple of missteps along the way, right? Some brackets I had to remove that I, I missed early on, right? Some wiring that I ran in the wrong direction to begin with that I had to undo and, and redo, right? Trying to get some screws through the right holes into the wood. You know, this kind of stuff that always pops up with projects like this uh, that make them never quite as easy as you would imagine them to be. Uh, after a couple hours, I finally had that thing up and running, you know. I had a cut on my hand from it, so I had scars to prove it. And uh, I don't know if you do this, but when I finish a project, right, that's why I've got that picture of that fence up there with the pretty bushes alongside of it. When I finish a project, what, this, is, this is what I do. I imagine some of you do too, but I get it up, I play with some of the buttons, and then I kind of step back, and I'm like, all right, that thing's up. It's good. It's working. Nice. Okay, the project... It's done. The project's not done. I still have to clean up, wipe everything down, throw away the trash, right? So it's not totally done, but we have that tendency. We do a project, right? You build this beautiful fence in your backyard, and what do we do? We kind of step back, and we like, oh, okay. All right. We did it. We finished the project. That's done. That's done. I did that. I did that in the kitchen. I stepped back. I took a minute to soak it in. I think as we, I use that story to, to start us off today to, to highlight the fact that I think this is where we're at in the text today, right? Chapter 6, we saw the wall come to, uh, come to its conclusion. We see a, a statement saying that it, it's over. And now as we move into this long list of names in chapter 7, we're at a point in the story where we're stepping back from the work of building the wall, of this project of building the wall, and we're set to start to pivot to this next focus of the story, which isn't the focus on building a physical wall, but the next part of the story is on building the spiritual life of the people and seeing the hearts of the people return to their God who gave them this land in the first place. Right? The wall is complete, church. Go back to chapter 6. We see that after all of the obstacles, all of the threats, all of the empty talk, all of the adversaries that would have come and raised themselves up against the Jews... The people get to this point now in chapter 7 and the work is done. They've dedicated themselves to finish uh, this, this task at hand. They're probably looking around saying, well, what's next, right? We're taking our breath. We're, we're taking it in. The wall's, the wall's rebuilt. What is next? The culmination of the work was almost a little anticlimactic, though, wasn't it, church? You remember Eric kind of highlighting that? The, the statement that the wall was finished. The entire first Six chapters up to that point had been dedicated to all that it took to get in, all the blood, sweat, and tears, and prayer, and labor to get to the point of building the wall. And what do you have as the announcement that the wall is done? One sentence. One sentence. One sentence about it being completed. As we move forward into chapter 7, I think that, that one sentence highlights the fact that the wall's not the actual important thing in the story of Nehemiah, is it? It is an important thing, but it's not the important thing. 
In chapter 7, the story pivots harder now from the physical structure of the wall to the people who make up the city, to the people of promise who have come to claim their inheritance as the descendants of Abraham and to return from the exile of their fathers to the city of Jerusalem, this city which is the center of their civil life. It is the capital of their kingdom. But even more importantly, Jerusalem is this city that sits at the center of the worship of the people. It is home to the temple. It is the city that features prominently in their poetry and in their eschatology. This city is wrapped up in their identity and in their hope in what God has promised in his deliverance and his blessings upon them. The city is an important place and its wall being restored is a vital piece of the work to see the city truly restored. But church, what is a city without the people? What is the wall around Jerusalem protecting if there's no one there in the temple sacrificing to Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh the way he's called them to do? What is this city without the people who will bring forth the Messiah, without this people who will bring blessing to the nation, what is this city without the people of God present in their place of worship, worshiping Him? Not much of a city, is it, church? It's just a wall around a bunch of empty buildings. And this is the hard pivot in the story of Nehemiah Church. Away from the physical structure away from the labor of building the wall and toward the people who are supposed to be enjoying the blessing of this place, of their inherited promise that has been given to them from Yahweh himself. Church, God is the God of all the earth and, and, and all that is in it. Amen? Amen? There is nothing out of his control or out of his reach or out of his sovereign, uh, out of his sovereign reign but his kingdom is not just about a place, and it's not just about the city of Jerusalem. No, his kingdom is found in the people of God who are living for him. I think that sits at the heart of this text. That's why we have this big, long list of names to go through, right? Why do we have this, God? How are we encouraged by this? These are real people at a real place, trusting in a real, living, true God to bless them and to carry them forward, and to fulfill the promises that he has made. Now the kingdom of God is found in the people of God who are living for him. We look at these people now in chapter 7, church, to see exactly who these people are, exactly who it is who has been called by the Lord to return to Jerusalem to restore this city. As we tackle this list a little bit today to hopefully draw out some of its theological connections that I think are there for us, I think we're also challenged by this text today to examine what it is or what kingdom it is we live in, what kingdom we represent, what kingdom we serve so that we are truly people of his kingdom. This world is tugging at our hearts, church. This world is tugging at the hearts of the Jews who have returned from exile We've seen it. We've seen the tension there along the way. And there's still tension there for them too. We, we see it at the end of, of chapter 7, right? It says they're in their towns. If we backed up to verse 4, this is what the one I was thinking of. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses have been rebuilt. They're there. They're at the edge. They're waiting to take hold of the promise. But the tension still exists in them, just like it does for us today. When that question comes up, what kingdom are we actually citizens of? What kingdom do we actually live in and represent? 
What kingdom do we live to see taken to the ends of the earth? Right? I love our country. Right? I was a United States Marine. I signed up to fight for our country and defend our country. I love our country. But it's God's kingdom that I'm taking to the ends of the earth. Right? America's going to fall one day. And it's sad. I love the freedoms. I love the way God has used this nation to carry forward the gospel and to be the protector of the gospel. But God has seen nations rise and fall before. We don't repent. We don't return to him. Then our time will come too. But guess what won't happen? His kingdom will never stop going forth to the ends of the earth. And that's what we have to look at our own hearts today too, church, is to ask ourselves, what kingdom are we a part of? So as this story in the book of Nehemiah takes that breath today, right? Remember, we're, we're breathing. The wall's done. We're saying, ah, okay, what's coming next, right? Let's take it in, enjoy it, and let's see what's next. So we're, we're at that point where we're breathing after the project of the wall has been completed, we have to ask ourselves, what, what exactly is going on in the text to show us this pivot away from the physical work to the spiritual work of rebuilding the people, right? That's what I told you we're doing here, so I have, to, I have to try to prove that to you here today, too, in the text. And I think the text gives us that, gives us that very thing. Let's start first by setting the stage in our text today and see what Nehemiah is telling us here. I said it already. I backed up to verse 4 where we read, uh, the city is ready to be lived in. But the people are few in it, and there's not a lot of houses, right? The people are at the edge. The people can move in. The people can go. The city has the wall built. The gates are up. It's ready to be protected. It's ready to be inhabited and to be lived in and to be enjoyed. It's ready to go, but it's not there yet. We're at that, we're at that piece where the people have to take that next step. And the people are the missing piece now inside the rebuilt Jerusalem. And we see in verse 5, Nehemiah sit there and express that kind of desire towards the people because he sits there and he says, Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Who are these people that are here with me? Who are these people that are here to do this work? Are we going to be the people of promise and embrace that? And if so, you know what? We need a little kickstart. And that kickstart Nehemiah goes to is not the thing we would probably look at, right? But he goes to a genealogy to say, who are we? Where have we come from? How have we got here? This act of enrolling people in a genealogy, we are told, is that the direction of the Lord? And I'm sure we've all come across people in our lives that have probably used language like that, haven't we? Where we sat there and tried to spiritualize their own decisions that they're making, saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm just doing God's will. I'm trying to figure it out. And you're looking at it saying like, I don't know how much I, I think you actually prayed about that. Right? So this isn't just Nehemiah trying to spiritualize his decision, though. I think Nehemiah has proven himself to this point to be a man of God, to seek after him, to actually seek after his will. And so from that, from that we see the next step being um, naming the people who have come to reoccupy and fill the city of Jerusalem. The next step of that is to look at the heritage, the heritage of the people who are there, who have come back to this place. These people who are the people of promise and the people of covenant with Yahweh that Nehemiah himself or counts himself as a member of, right? He says, you know what? We need to fill the city. We need to know who the people are who are coming. So let's get this process going. Let's do this genealogy. And while this task is at hand and the Lord has put it on his heart, Nehemiah, though, he doesn't have to start from scratch, does he? 
He doesn't have to start from scratch. That's what uh, the second point on the screen there, there's already a genealogy that has been conducted um, in uh, Ezra chapter 2. If we backed up our, our Bibles, uh, um, what, probably about 20 pages, we get back to Ezra chapter 2, and we find this record of exiles, the first exiles who returned to the land about 80 years prior to this time of Nehemiah. And with the finding of this book that, that Nehemiah has now in his hands, I, I do think it's an interesting bit of foreshadowing here, because as we'll see in chapter 8 next week, as uh, uh, Pastor Kaiki uh, digs into that, I think it's Kaiki, and Eric, following me, there we go. I got a head nod from Eric, so I'm not lying to you. So next week when Eric takes, or Kaiki takes us to chapter 8, we're going to see another book is found, right? And this is going to be really exciting as this group of people, uh, which, by the way, we also see Ezra return at that point. Um, we see this group of people really start to turn to the Lord, right? We see that hard pivot start to yield fruit as well. And here we have that foreshadowing because now all of a sudden it's like, hey, the genealogy has been done. There's things that are here that are left over from the people who've come before us. This theme of finding which is lost and restoring the people and the law and the worship of Yahweh, they are rich, I think, in the minor details throughout Nehemiah Church. So make sure you're paying attention to some of those things as you come across them. But this record of the returning people, of the people who are the first returning exiles uh, from Babylon that has been found by Nehemiah, like I said, can be found in Ezra chapter 2. And I do want to make this note as we, as we kind of press on here that if you put Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2 side by side, there are a few minor differences in a few places. And I think there are several very good explanations that uh, smarter men than I have, have given to explain why, um, why that record looks slightly different. And so I could go into all of those reasons here too, but when I find places like that, I think, church, the, the better uh, uh, thing to stick with me is to, is to look at the world when the world would try to criticize us for that and saying, well, why is there this discrepancy? Why is there this inconsistency? And it's not inconsistency, right? I think it's better to look at the world and, and, and tell them when we're criticized for that, well, if you really think the Bible's been changed over the years, why would such a glaring example have been left in in that case, right? There's obviously something going on in the text. Something happened. There is a textual variant there, too, where uh, things don't line up perfectly, almost perfectly, but not, not perfectly, where we have to sit there and we do have to acknowledge the fact that um, it's not completely identical, identical. And these minor differences in a couple places here, just like every textual variant we see in Scripture, they don't change the underlying message of what is being communicated. And being that we're dealing with this text, I just want to make sure and take just a second to acknowledge that because we do have to be honest with that. That's the beautiful thing about our Bible, church, is that Christians are honest about our text and what we have to deal with and some of the things that are more difficult passages to deal with, don't we? We don't run from the hard parts of Scripture. We run to them and we embrace them. Right, church? And so this is a good example of that right here for us. So just look at that, and, and if, that, if that bothers you, if we're done, if I didn't do a good job explaining that, let's talk, and we can look at some of those other explanations as to why that might be. But church, I just want to encourage you, when people look at us and say, the Bible's been changed, the Bible's been changed, well, why would such a, a plain example be left in there then? Right? No. God's Word is true. God's Word has lasted and stood the test of time. And I think that's a, an example of that rather than an example of the opposite. This is the backdrop for us, so church, as we enter into chapter 7. This is the backdrop. This is where Nehemiah is at. This is the heart that he has 
to see the city repopulated, and now he's looking to the people to say, who are the people who are, are, coming, uh, who are coming to actually fill the city and to be those kingdom people? So here's the next part, right? Here's the next part for us. Biggest piece of the chapter here, the big list of names from, from verse 6 to verse 60. And so I want us to just take a, a little bit of time here now, and let's ask the question, who are these people? What are a few observations we can make about these people? This is a big, long list of names that uh, many of them are tied back to other pieces of Scripture that we'll hit quickly here. So we won't hit every little detail, but let's take just a little bit of a look and if we can see some of the importance of uh, who they are and why they are where they're at. See, this list of names, I think, first I want us to see is it's organized for us in a manner that gives us an idea of the gifts and the roles that these returning exiles are to fill when the city is restored. We look at verse 7, that's on the list. The, the verse 7, we get a list of leaders who are returning with the first exiles. The first name in that list is Zerubbabel. If you go back to the book of Ezra, you will find Zerubbabel is the main character of Ezra chapters 1 through 6. He's kind of like the Nehemiah of that first part of the book of Ezra as he is leading this work of the people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So these are leaders who are coming back, who are kind of listed there uh, at first. And Zerubbabel, at the top of the list, was, like I said, the kind of central figure like Nehemiah was. Verses 8 to 38 give us a list of the men of the people. So this is more of a list of sort of uh, the common people that didn't have a particular uh, task associated to their heritage or to their, to their lineage. But these are just people who are part of the kingdom coming to live there. Verses 39 to 42 gives us a list of people who are descended from priests, right? The priests in Israel were a very specific group of people that were descendants of Aaron, who was a part of the tribe of Levi. So these people who are coming or who are listed in verses 39 to 42 are descendants of these uh, kingdom priests or these uh, Levitical priests. In verse 43, we get a list of Levites. We get a list of Levites. Why do we have priests and Levites? Right? Well, it's because not every, or every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. Right? So that's why you have two different lists here with that. And it's an important distinction for the people who are returning to restore Jerusalem because the priests play a key role in the worship of the Jews. And we see the establishment of this Levitical priesthood in Exodus chapter 29. And we see how it is Aaron and his sons who shall fill that role for Israel. And so in order to restore worship, the way it is directed by the Mosaic Covenant to, to be, they would have to be able to identify who is with them and who it is that's biblically called and qualified to fill that role, right? Are you a Levite? Yeah, you're a Levite. Okay, great. Are you a part of the qualified priesthood? No? Okay, well, you're a Levite, right? There's people who are coming that have roles and jobs, and these ones in particular are tied to their family lineage, which makes the genealogy even more important as people desire to be obedient and worship the way Yahweh has commanded the Jews to worship. Verse 44, you got to skip the next slide. Verse 44, we see a list of people who are called singers. Singers. It's kind of interesting, right? Like, where are all the singers at? You know, no, that's not what we're doing here. That's not quite what's going on, right? But the singers actually reference a group of people that were established by David uh, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 25. And this is a group of people who are given the job, right? And obviously they pass it along uh, through their tradition to their uh, kids and to their family to lead worship, like 
when I say worship, to lead music inside the temple. So this group of singers, that's why we see that name Asaph, and we can say the singers in Asaph, and we can go directly to 1 Chronicles 25 and see that connection when David establishes that job for people to be doing in Israel there. Verse 45 is similar. We see this reference to the gatekeepers, right, and the sons of Shelem. And the gatekeepers, again, were another group that was established by David with a particular job in Israel. Uh, back in 1 Chronicles 9, we see their establishment, and we even see that name Shelem, right? These people who are here now are descendants of that man Shelem, who David appointed to be the head of the gatekeepers. Verse 40, 46 to 56, we have temple servants. And verses 57 to 59, we have a list of the king's servants. So we have this long list of people, many of whom are arranged and organized by the jobs uh, their ancestors had done, and by which extension they have uh, the proper qualifications to continue to fulfill. I think it's interesting uh, that the genealogy is broken down by the jobs too, right? I don't think that's an accident. I think that's on purpose. And I don't think it's to tell us that people are only identified by what it is that, w- that they do. That's a mistake we make in our culture, isn't it, church? We sit there and somebody asks like, oh, you know, hey, uh, I'm Matt. Oh, hey, I'm Kaiki. Oh, cool, you know, nice to meet you. What do you do? That's the first thing we go to, right? And we look to identify people by what it is that they do, right? I'm Matt. Yeah, I'm Walker. What, do, what is it you do? And it's like there's more to Walker than laying concrete, right? There's more to Kaiki than just um, getting sick all the time, right? So, <laughs> so there's more. That's his job. That's his job now. Right? There's more to each one of us than just the things that we do. And that's a mistake we make. So don't read that, I think, into the text here. Like that this is just who these people are. These people are children of Yahweh. They are children of faith. They are children of Abraham. That's their identity. But they have jobs and they have gifts that they've been given to use for their community and for the blessing of one another. I think we see this communicated in, in two ways to us. Uh, as breaking and breaking down the genealogy through these jobs, I think the first uh, the first thing that I think we see communicated to us, and I think that's what's on the slide there. I either got to get my contacts fixed, or we got to make that less blurry. Uh, so the people need to remember they are inheritors of the promises of Yahweh. I think it's me, Bob. I don't think it's that. So I appreciate it, though. <clears throat> my voice is starting to go too, church. Mm. so we said the first thing the people need to remember that they are inheritors of the promises of Yahweh this is I think the first thing that we get communicated to us by this genealogy and by listing the heritage and the jobs that some of these people are connected to they are reminded that they are people who have a promise that they carry with them they return to Jerusalem to see it restored and the people need to be connected to their ancestral roots here and at this time. Not for a sense of pride, right? This isn't trying to encourage the people to be proud and arrogant of their standing because of what God has done for them. No, they need to be connected to those ancestral roots because this is a group of people who were lost and in the wilderness, and they are returning to this promised land, to this blessing of Yahweh, and they need to have the grounding and the foundation to understand what it is they're coming into what it is they're inheriting. This is an inheritance for these people, right? This isn't just we picked up and we moved across town. This is the promise God gave their ancestors to them in this place. 
That's why they need to be connected to their ancestral roots in this time. They need that remembering. They need to remember who it is they are and who it is they came from. They need to remember the one who gave them the promise so that when they return to this land to see it restored, they also return to what? They return to the worship of the one who gave them the place. Turning the hearts of the people. Turning the hearts of the people, right church? That's what we're looking for is to see the hearts of the people turn to the Lord. There's a quick verse in Deuteronomy 7 I want to share with you just to highlight who it is these people are who are returning. Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verse 6, we see God record this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's who these people come from. The people who are occupying the land, they're moving back to reoccupy the land. That's who they come from. Their fathers, just a hundred years before them, were sent into exile because of their rejection of the covenant that the people had made. But even in exile, what did we see when we started this journey in Nehemiah? Even going into exile, God promised them he would not forgive, forget them or forsake them. There would be a time where they would wander in the wilderness but they would return. And as they return from exile, they need to never forget that they are the people of the one true and living God. And they are coming to have their hearts turned back toward Him, to love Him, to just sit with Him because He is their God. He is their provider. He is their sustainer. And He has chosen to be gracious with them. The second thing I think we see, church, and I, I see the second line up there, God has provided these people all that they need for the restoration of Jerusalem. The second thing I, I think this genealogy conveys to us in breaking down each of these things by jobs is that we see the occupation of ancestors, of people who are called and qualified to fill some of these positions that, that need to be filled. And in this, we see that God is at work sending back people to Jerusalem in order to provide for the various aspects of life inside his kingdom city. The city is ready in Nehemiah 7 to be inhabited. And we look to this record of the exiles who have returned, and we see that everything that is needed to make Jerusalem the thriving center of God's people and the thriving center of the worship of Yahweh, he has been faithful to already give them what they need. Those things have been provided for. And they've been provided for in the community and into the responsibilities to the gifts of the people that are already present. Everyone has a part to play in this work. Everyone has some kind of gift or ability to contribute to building up the city. And God has given them everything they need. Reminds me a lot, church, for us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12, What does Paul use as that example for the church to tell us that we have what we need in Christ? He uses that example of a body, right? 
We're one body with many members, many different parts, many different gifts, but we come together to serve the kingdom, right, and what we're gifted in, right? I'm not, I'm not a musician, right? You guys don't want me getting up here. I mean, I like to sing. My kids will tell you that. I sing loudly, many times off-key at home, but I, I, so I'll do it, but you don't want me to. You want Gary and you want Janet, and you want Leslie and Sierra, and you want uh, uh, Molly, and you want um, Jessica, some of these other people who actually are gifted to sing, right? That's who you want doing it, right? But we all have different gifts at the same time, too. I love to go out and just pass out tracts and pass out invitation cards. Go out on the street and meet new people and say, hey, can we talk about Jesus? I like to do that. There's some of you that would be lock their doors if they saw me coming to pick you up for that day, right? I'm like, hey, I'm coming to pick you up to go out with me. They're like, is Matt here yet? And, you know, no one's home. That's not your gift. We all have different gifts. We're all different pieces of this one body working together. And praise God, I see that in us, Faith Baptist Church. Since the day we charted this course, when we went through some rocky times a couple of years ago, we had to stop and we had to assess and say, what do we have? What do we need? Where is God going to take us? And praise God, he has been faithful to show he has either given us everything we need right here for when we need it, or he has provided it along the way. Has he not, church? He has been faithful and he has been good to us. And we see that in the story here in Jerusalem. And we can look forward today to that, his, his faithfulness still being present in our lives. Amen. Hallelujah, church. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing seeing his kingdom at work. And I think we can take that from this genealogy and seeing the jobs, the people broken down by their gifts and their abilities and their jobs, is that we see God provides for his kingdom. He did then, he still does now too, church. We hit a next part of our text in verses 61 through 65. That, that first bit was the recognized people and who they were. Uh, this pit will hit kind of quickly, but I just want to uh, make this note in 61 through 65 that the returning exiles are taking this return seriously, right? Positions that have qualifications are being examined for such. And this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. This is not about keeping people out of jobs that they desire to do, but it's about putting the right people in the right places as God has called them to do that. And they're diligently examining the qualifications of people who would come and make a claim to the promised inheritance of the people of Israel, and even people who'd come and claim that they were qualified for positions as priests. This is verse 61 through 65. There's a group of people who come to be enrolled in the genealogy that has taken place already in Ezra 2. And they're saying, yes, we're from Israel. Yes, some of them are even saying, yes, we're from the line of priests. But they can't, they can't verify that. There's no record of that. And so the people are being very cautious because, again, the people were exiled because of their disobedience and their failure to maintain the covenant. And so they're coming back now and saying, almost too cautiously in some ways, we need to make sure we are, we are, um, we are following this to the letter of the law. And we'll see later on, or especially in Ezra, we'll see them take it to a legalistic extreme, right? But here we see people again, they're coming up saying, yeah, I'm a priest, right? I'm a priest. I'm from the priestly line. That's not someone you want to be a priest if you can't verify they're qualified, right? That's like if I'd have walked up to you guys, uh, you know, so many years ago without you knowing me and been like, I'm a pastor. I'll come pastor your church. What would the response have been, right? You would have looked at me and been like, good for you. Right? Just like you should have been. Just like you should have been. We can relate to this, can't we, church? We can sympathize. We don't use genealogies to verify, but when someone comes and says, yeah, we want to join the church, what do we do? We examine their testimony. 
We let them share their testimony of faith in Christ, right? We, we see their lives. We get to know them, right? We don't just take anybody off the street that just is like, I want to join the church. No, we want you as a member to really be uh, in uh, communion with Christ, to be saved by Christ, right? That's a, a piece of the membership element there. We do it, again, raising up deacons or elders. We look to the Scripture. We examine their qualifications in, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, and we say, are these men qualified to fill the role that they're called to do? And this is what the people are doing now in verses 61 to 65. This little section there is people who have come, said they're supposed to be there, but they can't verify it. So they're saying, we need time to examine this and to understand it better. One interesting thing too, um, one quick note for verse 65. Uh, again, the way that they're uh, discerning this situation and the way we would discern a situation kind of that we could relate to it, very different, right? They, they reference something interesting here called the Urim and the Thummim. And these uh, Urim and the Thummim, these were actually gemstones that were a part of priestly garments. Either they were on the garment or the priest would carry them in their garment. And these were stones that were used by the priest uh, to help determine the will of God when questionable issues would arise, right? And we don't have a lot in Scripture to give us the exact details of how that worked, right? Um, but it, it's something that, the, that Israel did do and that the priests would do to help discern the will of God. We don't have an Urim and a Thummim. So again, if we have an issue, we're using different things to discern. Praise God, He's given us His Holy Spirit to help us uh, have that kind of discernment. But just when you see that phrase, the Urim and the Thummim, we kind of know what that is now, Right? And we know that that's not something that if somebody tells you, oh, you need help determining God's will, let's use my Urim and Thummim, we can sit there and say, no, that's, yeah, you're not a Levitical priest. So we'll, we'll leave that back, right? All right, quick note on that one too, church, because that's something that I think sticks out as a, as a little unusual in our modern Western minds, doesn't it? Okay, pressing on with our text. Verse 66 to 68 gives us a summary of the numbers. And we see the total of all the people that are listed is about 50,000 people. Uh, that's adding in uh, the people, uh, adding in, where'd it go? That's adding in uh, the assembly together, as well as the male and female servants, right? You got about 50,000 people who returned from exile, right? And there's an interesting shift here now in verses 70 and 72, because 70 and 72, uh, at the end of Ezra's uh, list that he gives, he also takes up an offering, or they also take an offering at the, at the end of there too. But in Nehemiah chapter 7, we also see another offering take up. And again, the numbers don't quite line up, but we also see Nehemiah, I think, make reference to himself. So we're shifting forward in time now, right? As verse 70 starts, we pick up now with Nehemiah again, taking up an offering from the people that he is with in Jerusalem now. And I think we see that because in verse 70, we see Nehemiah reference himself as the governor in verse 70, and the governor is giving freely of himself. And we know Nehemiah, he's proven himself to be a man who's been very generous and giving freely of himself as well too. So we see the Jews from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas now, they've clearly bought into the vision for the restoration of Jerusalem now, haven't they? Right? Let me just read verse 70 to 72 for us. Now some of the heads of the father's house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minus of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minus of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priest garments. 
Why make note of this? Why mention this, right? We have it in Ezra chapter 2. We have the people coming and responding and giving to the work. And now we have Nehemiah chapter 7, something that we, we are perfectly uh, reasonable to believe that this is a second offering now taken up. I think we see this because I think we see the seriousness and the, the people being actually bought into seeing the work go through. Put your money where your mouth is, right? That's the phrase we use in America. For some non-Americans, that's the phrase in America. Put your money where your mouth is, right? Are you walking the walk? Are you talking the talk? How do we demonstrate it is we believe what we believe? And the people give to the work and to the rebuilding of the city. Ezra chapter 2, we have the offering there. Nehemiah chapter 7, we have this offering here. And it's in order to provide for the work that is still needed to repopulate the city and to provide for the priests as they return to the temple to sacrifice again. And I think here we see an example of the people in, in, of God in the Old Testament, right? That in a lot of ways reflects the commands that are given to us as Christians to, uh, to direct our giving as well now too, do we not? Right? Because how we contribute to the work of the kingdom now, we, it doesn't quite fit. Like the commands in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, in terms of all of the tithes and offerings that had to have been given, they don't quite line up with where we're at culturally. But we see a different pattern given to us in the New Testament, don't we, church? And how we contribute to this kingdom work. Right? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 6 to 7, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? This is the kind of attitude and the kind of heart we're seeing from the people here. Right? This is not a, a list of the offerings that they were supposed to give under the law. This is the people just giving freely of themselves now because they see the, the place that they're at and they see the work coming to pass and they see the need and they're ready and they're bought in and they're committed and they believe this is where God is taking them, right? And this is like, this is a lot of ways similar to how we give nowadays. God loves a cheerful giver, right? I'm not walking around sitting there um, um, shaking everybody down for money on your way out. Did you give your 10% this week? Did you give your 10% this week? No. That's between you and God. That's between you and God to look and say, God, how can I use what you've given me to best serve your kingdom? And praise God for the faithfulness of the people here. Y'all are a very generous and faithful people because we wouldn't be sitting here today if that wasn't the case. So I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit has worked in your lives to do that. And if not, if you're holding on to something, seek the Lord in that. He, he loves a cheerful giver and he wants us to be bought in to the work of his kingdom. And not only that too, we want Faith Baptist Church to be a place where people can come and they can see when you, when you give your offerings to the Lord that this is a place you can entrust that money is going to the work of building the kingdom. Not to frivolous stuff, not to smoke machines, right? Not to pizza. Well, pizza parties are okay, right? Not to, not to just frivolous games or goofy things that aren't really leaving a kingdom impact. We want to go to the nations, right? We want to reach this community. We want to strengthen our discipleship in our church. And we want as many of those dollars going right back into that work because that is the work that God will use to grow this church, to, to spread his kingdom in our community and ultimately to let us partner better with people across the face of the earth. That's the kind of attitude we want to have towards giving. I hope that's the kind of buy-in we have here at Faith Baptist Church. I told you, given our size, I don't think we could continue if that wasn't the case. So I thank God for all of you. I thank God for all of you and your faithfulness. And I just pray that he just continues to multiply that because his kingdom, I think, is going forth. 
out of here. And that's what we're seeking to do. So the people there too, they show their buy-in. They show their buy-in, their commitment. They literally put their money where their mouth is. And I think here, I clicked forward ahead a little bit, so I'm sorry on the slide there. But here is another place we see at this point in the story where we see the pivot away from the wall, away from the rebuilding of physical structure toward the people. It's toward the people who have returned to the people who have sacrificed to build the wall of the city to the hearts of these people that are starting to turn. And now they're starting to warm up. They're starting to beat and they're starting to pump life into the people. That's spiritual life. Spiritual life is being pumped into the people. Hearts that were once dead, cold and stony like Ezekiel describes, they are now being brought to life as they turn toward Yahweh, the only one who can give and sustain their life. These are a people that were dead and being brought to life, church. These were a people who were lost and have been found. These are a people who had a promise and sought it out, and Yahweh is seeking to restore that promise now. He has called them out of their exile when they were lost and hopeless, and He has brought them to restore this city. But in actuality, He's restoring them to Himself. Last verse of Nehemiah chapter 7. There's one thing left for them to do. It's time for them to leave their towns that they're comfortable in, and it's time for them to come to the city. It's time for them to come to this place that God has prepared for them, that he has called them to occupy and to fill and to, uh, uh, to worship. And the next couple of chapters, I've I kind of given it away a little bit, but I'm going to do it again, are going to be a beautiful sight. We, we are at this uh, a beautiful crescendo of the book of Nehemiah Church where we see the people weep over their lostness, where we see the people return to the Lord with a, a desire and a strength that is just, it's beautiful to see. This is a turning point. We are here at a turning point to see that the Lord is turning people's hearts to Him. It's about rebuilding the people for Himself and not just the city. I've said it before, too. I, I hate to, to, to burst everybody's bubble, but the beautiful scene that we get to see the next few weeks it's, uh, it's over by the end of chapter 13, right? The people, the people fail. It's not, it's not the final end, right? It's sad because you see the heart and you see God working to turn the hearts and then you see by the end of chapter 13 the hearts of men lingering, lingering as an exile when they could be that child of God. They could be found. They could be in that city and in that place. They are lingering. That's the bad news, church, at the end of chapter 13. I want to leave you with a little bit of good news, though, too, right? And I know we're pushing time, so I'm going to hurry up. To be fair, there were 900 words in the passage today, so that ate into a lot of my time. So nobody gets to say anything bad to me after I get done for that, okay? If we turn all the way to the end in Revelation chapter 21, church, we get to see the good, good news that where Nehemiah 13 fails. We see the true fulfillment of a holy city being populated by the people of God. Verse 10 of Revelation 21, Paul writes about his vision, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. There is this heavenly city waiting, church. 
This verse, I only read verse 10 because I knew we'd be short on time, but if you went back to the beginning of Revelation 21, that's the place where we sit there and we see that it's done. Jesus is doing it. He's wiped away every tear. He is bringing his people to himself into eternity where there will be no more sin and we don't have to sit there and worry about death anymore. Nehemiah 13, at the, or Nehemiah, the people are moving into a city to worship. But even the promise, the promise that they have, all of the things, the ancestors that they have, all of the things that are binding them to the city, that are telling them to embrace this promise, it's not strong enough to pull people out of this world. There's only one thing strong enough to pull people out of this world and out of that mindset. It is the very blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, when He came and He died and He bled for us. He came and He died to bring restoration to His people. True and lasting restoration that will not pass. And we may have to walk through as exiles in this world still too. But church, if you flip to the end of the book, we win. And we win not because it's us, but we win because He wins. And when we do, we see the true fulfillment of that holy city. We see a slight glimmer of it there in Revelation 21. The restored Jerusalem and Nehemiah, it's not it. It's a picture. It's a time. It's something leading up. Christ will bring that holy city, that new Jerusalem, that place that will truly fulfill that, where we'll walk in and we'll never want to leave. We'll have that one day. We're on our way, church. We're on our way there. All right, I know we're really pushing time, so I want to leave us with three application things. I'm not going to talk too much about it. I'm going to leave them there, and we can talk about it in our community groups. First things first, church, Colossians chapter 1 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, if you're hearing my voice, uh, praise God. I know most of you, and I know your faith. Praise God that He has worked in your lives. If you're hearing this and Christ is not your Lord and Savior and you have not confessed Him as the Son of God who has come to redeem and restore and uh, um, recreate creation, do that today. You're living in a domain of darkness and He has come to deliver you out of that domain of darkness into His kingdom of light. Do that today. I have passports on there. You guys remember us using that back in September when we were going through Matthew chapter uh, 14, Right? Our passports, if you're in Christ, nope, not United States of America, passport, kingdom of heaven. It's been stamped. Come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. A couple other things for us. First one, come to Christ, be delivered into his kingdom as his people. Second thing, church, for us to think about, how do we serve him with what he's gifted us? How do we serve him with what he's gifted us? We see all these people in Jerusalem being put in places to do that. We're carrying on that legacy here today. So how has he gifted you to serve his kingdom? And finally, are we bought into the work of his kingdom? Are we generous people? Are we excited to be giving to the work that's going forward, right? And I don't mean that in, in like a sinful, like sow a seed type of way and you're going to get back 10,000 fold like you see on TV. No, that's foolishness and that's sin and that needs to be rejected. Please don't send money off to TV preachers. Please don't send money off to TV preachers, right? But find a place where you can buy in and be committed and say, yes, God, what I have to give back to you, we are giving to this kingdom work here. Are you bought in like that church that you're not holding on to anything in this world? Right? Those are the three things. I'm not going to go anymore because I know we're pushing time. So thank you so much for, for putting up with me. We'll have community groups to talk about those a little bit more, church. Will you go ahead and pray with me, please?
Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word, God. Uh, it's amazing in our human minds uh, how we can look at a big, long list of names. And when we look at it at first, we can sit there and say, what in the world do you have for us here, Lord? But thank you for the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper. Thank you for spiritual eyes to see beyond my flesh to where I can sit there and say, God, there is, is depth there and there is encouragement there that if we take time, we can mine that out. So Lord, I pray that's what we did here today. And I pray it wasn't just the ramblings of a foolish man in front of this church, God. Let, our, let your church be encouraged right now, uh, knowing that, uh, Lord, you have promised uh, from the beginning in the garden to bring redemption and, and restoration to your people, that you will crush the head of the serpent. Lord, in Nehemiah's day, they were looking forward to see that come to be. And Father, praise, praise be to you that we get to look back and see your son in that role and in that place for us, Lord. So let us now uh, come and feast at the table. Let us sing. Let us just be encouraged uh, to be a part of your kingdom today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.